0: Hello and welcome to the Point of Care Podcast. Today's episode is on the inpatient management of hyperkalemia. For some background and epidemiology, though cutoffs vary, hyperkalemia is generally considered to be a potassium level above 5.5 mEq per liter. Symptoms are usually not present until the potassium is above 7 mEq per liter, or if the level rapidly rises due to an acute insult. There is no consensus definition for what is considered acute versus chronic hyperkalemia. Hyperkalemia is present in about 2-3% of the population, but can be present in up to half of patients with CKD. For the pathophysiology, hyperkalemia influences resting membrane potential, which can lead to increased excitability of cells. Only 2% of total body potassium is extracellular, and this level is tightly regulated. The resting membrane potential is negative 90 millivolts. This potential becomes lower, in other words, less negative, i.e. it goes from negative 90 to negative 80, when there's more potassium outside of cells, which means less of a signal is needed to fire an action potential, leading to increased excitability and possibly arrhythmias, especially if the changes to the potential are acute. Chronic changes in extracellular potassium leads to compensatory mechanisms to reduce excitability. Potassium is exchanged for sodium in the distal nephron. If RAS is on in hypovolemia, congestive heart failure, or cirrhosis, less sodium makes it to this portion and potassium is not excreted in exchange for the sodium, potentially leading to hyperkalemia. Acidosis also causes hyperkalemia By messing with the sodium H plus antiporter efficacy, which leads to decreased intracellular sodium, which impacts the efficacy of the sodium potassium ATPase pump and leads to increased extracellular potassium, leading to hyperkalemia. On the other hand, insulin stimulates and beta blockers inhibit the sodium potassium ATPase pump. Hyperkalemia from acute insults is usually short-lived unless there's a chronic ongoing process such as hypoaldosteronism, renal disease, or certain medication use. For your admission checklist, first get a gut check. Repeat the potassium level, and a VBG is okay for a quick ballpark, to assess for pseudohyperkalemia if the patient is asymptomatic and does not have EKG changes. For your ABCs, get a STAT EKG to look for peaked T-waves, heart block, or an arrhythmia and give calcium gluconate if there's any changes. For your triage, a hyperkalemic emergency is present with one or more of the following. A potassium greater than 6.5 mil equivalents per liter, clinical changes including EKG changes or muscle weakness, and an active process leading to persistently elevated potassium levels including end-stage renal disease, a GI bleed, rhabdomyolysis, or TLS. For your chart check, look for a history of CKD or end-stage renal disease, the last time a patient received dialysis, their home medications, and any prior EKGs for comparison. You cannot miss EKG changes, acidosis, evidence of renal failure, or adrenal insufficiency. For your initial admission orders, make sure the patient is on continuous telemetry, order a low-potassium diet, and get BMPs every Q2 to 4 hours— get LFTs, a VBG, and consider the need to send a CK, hemolysis labs, or cortisol aldosterone. Your initial treatment you can consider, in general, insulin 10 units IV with D50, furosemide 40 mg plus IV, lokelma 10 mg TID, and think about treating the underlying cause. This can include acidosis, hypovolemia, DKA, hypoaldosteronism, and offending medications. Consider the need for dialysis if the hyperkalemia is severe and the initial temporizing efforts are ineffective. For your HPI intake, ask the patient about any symptoms including weakness, paresthesias, nausea vomiting, constipation, or palpitations. Ask about the preceding events including a missed dialysis, traumas, and any exercise. Ask about medications they take focusing on ace MRAs, Bactrim, NSAIDs, beta blockers, or potassium supplements. Also look into their comorbidities, including CKDate and end-stage renal, and ask the patient if they make urine, a history of diabetes, adrenal insufficiency, and any known malignancy. To note on your exam, for the neuro exam, look for weakness, decreased reflexes, and whether the patient is altered. For their cardiac exam, look for their heart rate and to see if they have an irregular rhythm and on their skin and extremity exam, look for edema or evidence of dehydration. When thinking about the etiology and differential, the first is reduced elimination. This can include end-stage renal, CKD, or an AKI, medications, hypoaldosteronism, or hypocortisolism, and a type 4 RTA. The next is anything that shifts potassium into the extracellular space. This can be caused by acidosis, most commonly lactic acidosis or DKA, and medications such as beta blockers or digoxin. The next is extracellular release, which can happen when cells break open in the case of rhabdomyolysis, tumor lysis syndrome, hemolysis, or pseudohyperkalemia. And the final is if there's excess intake of potassium from diet. For your plan, for treatment, think about whether or not you need to do membrane stabilization if it's an emergency, order calcium gluconate 1-2 to 2 grams IV over 5-10 to 10 minutes, and repeat this every 5 minutes if you notice persistent EKG changes. Note that the effect of calcium gluconate only lasts between 30-60 to 60 minutes, and you might need to give it again. For temporizing measures, again if it's an emergency, you can push insulin 10 units IV with 50 cc's of D5W if the blood glucose is less than 250. You can also give adjuvant albuterol nebulizers, which is a short-acting beta agonist, 10 to 20 milligrams. But this is usually not used as a monotherapy and is only given with insulin. For elimination, you usually do this if there's either an emergency or a mild elevation, and you have concern that the potassium either is going to continue to rise or it won't go down. You can give furosemide 40 milligrams IV if the patient is making urine. Or you can give sodium, zirconium, cyclosilicate, or lokelma, 10mg TID along with a laxative as long as the patient is making a stool. Last but not least, you can dialyze the patient if it's an emergency and you're unable to lower the potassium by other means. You can give bicarb if the pH is less than 7.2. Think about giving the patient a low potassium diet, and if there's concern for adrenal insufficiency, give hydrocortisone and flugicort. If you remember nothing else, the most common cause of hyperkalemia presenting to the hospital is CKD end stage renal, commonly due to misdialysis, and specific medication use. A hyperkalemic emergency is present if the potassium level is greater than 6.5 mEq per liter. There are clinical or EKG changes, or an active process that would lead to persistently elevated potassium levels, including end stage renal disease, GI bleeding, rhabdomyolysis, or TLS. First, get an EKG and give calcium gluconate if there's any changes. You should give insulin 10 units with D50 if you need to momentarily temporize, and then give either furosemide and or lakalma to eliminate the potassium from the body. Don't wait to see if elimination will work if there's indications for emergent dialysis, such as acute renal failure, with evidence of poor urine output. For some pearls related to the etiology, the most common cause of hyperkalemia is decreased renal function or missed dialysis sessions in those with end-stage renal disease. Common outpatient meds that can cause hyperkalemia include ACEs or ARBs, MRAs, NSAIDs, and Bactrum. Under normal conditions, human kidneys should be able to excrete up to 400 millimoles of potassium each day. Thus, the risk of hyperkalemia is only really possible in those with renal disease. Some of the most common sources of dietary potassium are potatoes, cereals, meat, and dairy products. Other potassium-rich foods include avocados, bananas, leafy green vegetables, root vegetables, and tomatoes. A type 4 RTA leads to reduced ability to reabsorb sodium in the distal tubule, thus leading to less potassium excretion. Hypoaldosteronism leads to hyperkalemia due to a lack of mineralocorticoids. For some pearls related to presentation and diagnosis, patients with severely elevated or acutely elevated potassium levels are more likely to have symptoms. Patients with chronic elevations will often be asymptomatic and may be diagnosed incidentally on lab work. A VBG or ABG potassium level may not perfectly correlate with the BMP level, but should be within 0.5 millimoles per liter. In vivo hemolysis is a genuine cause of hyperkalemia, whereas hemolysis in vitro as part of the blood drawing process will lead to hyperkalemia. Most labs will report this as hemolyzed rather than report a likely inaccurately elevated level. The EKG does not always correlate with the actual potassium level. It depends in part on the chronicity of the elevation. As such, EKG is not a sensitive test for hyperkalemia, but can alert you to the risk of an adverse cardiac event. The classic EKG progression in hyperkalemia includes peaked T waves, followed by an increased P interval and the flattening of P waves, followed by a widening QRS and a bundle branch block, followed by sine wave, followed by PEA, asystole, or ventricular fibrillation. Note that these changes do not necessarily happen in this order. The atria are more susceptible to potassium, which is why we tend to see P-wave flattening earlier than changes in the QRS. Hypo and hyperkalemia are two of the H's in the H's and T's for causes of PEA arrest. At very high levels, potassium can lead to asystole and so it's never a bad idea to give calcium gluconate if there's a suspicion this might be the etiology of the PEA arrest. If a patient is in DKA, they may be hyperkalemic since insulin is not present to push it into the cells, but your total body K will be low, so you need to replete when the potassium level is less than 5.2 and hold insulin if the potassium is less than 3.3 to avoid hypokalemia and possibly a fatal arrhythmia. For pearls related to treatment, calcium gluconate should reverse an EKG changes within five minutes, and if not, push it again. Calcium chloride has a higher risk of tissue necrosis at the IV site and should be given centrally. Calcium salts in general have no actual effect on potassium levels and don't last more than 30 to 60 minutes. You must always give other treatments beyond calcium in a hyperkalemic emergency. Temporizing and redistributing K can drive the potassium level down by 0.5 to 1.5 milliequivalents per liter in the short term. Patients receiving insulin to temporize should not receive concomitant D50 if the glucose level is above 250. This is because hyperglycemia can lead to worse extracellular potassium levels, like in DKA pathology. If you administer dextrose, the insulin may outlast it, so watch for the development of hypoglycemia. Giving insulin leads to potassium-entering cells, commonly in the liver and skeletal muscle. This happens with normal physiology so that some can be released later on when patients are fasting to maintain an appropriate balance just like with glucose. An inhaled short-acting beta-agonist like albuterol should not be used as monotherapy and is less likely to work in patients who are taking beta-blockers or have CKD. In normal conditions, 90% of potassium is eliminated renally and 10% in stool. Elimination via furosemide or lokalma requires urine or stool output. If the patient cannot do either, The only other way to eliminate potassium from the body is via dialysis. Elimination is not required in all patients with hyperkalemia, especially if the acute insult has been addressed. Cation exchange resins work by releasing sodium ions, which are in turn exchanged with potassium in the gut. Resins commonly lead to constipation and should be given with laxatives. Sodium polystyrene sulfonate also known as KXLATE, has been compared to sodium zirconium cyclosilicate, also known as Lokelma, and has been shown to have more adverse effects, specifically gut necrosis. Bicarbonate should only be used in patients who have severe acidosis. That's all for this episode. Check out pointofcaremedicine.com to see the templates we discussed, as well as the pearls, literature, and links to other resources.